Yes, I am very, uh, very pleased and happy to be here. Uh, this is a great opportunity for me to get to meet you guys. Uh, I've known, uh, you know, Brother Dave for quite some time now. I think that we met back in 2005 at Brother Jed's wow. conference. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's been, um, it's been very good to be able to come and to see uh, you again and, and your family and to, to meet everyone else. Now, I've been traveling and, and preaching the gospel on universities and colleges since 2005. Uh, when I first started out, I bought a minivan, and I was a single guy in my early 20s. And I put a mattress in the back of that minivan, and me and two other guys just hit the road, and we traveled for a whole semester, just preaching everywhere that we could, all the campuses that we would come across, and the streets, and the festivals, and the bars and clubs. Sometimes we'd park and sleep at a Walmart, you know, most of the time we had host homes that would put us up and uh, just went full force into preaching the gospel. Then uh, eventually I got married and we started having children, so we traveled for some time uh, with host homes and then we had an RV and a big truck and a, a fifth wheel that we were hauling down the highway. Now we are stationed um, in East Texas. We have a house uh, right down the street from the local YWAM base, the Twin Oaks Ranch, which is uh, their headquarters and um, we are basing our ministry out from there so we travel for some time go back home travel again come back home and that sort of thing I was saved in 2000 and I came out of a life of drugs and violence and crime and I was going in and out of a juvenile detention center uh, the first time uh, I was arrested was when I was 15 and I was arrested for a felony I got into a fight with someone and uh, assaulted them with a glass bottle. I hit him in the head with a glass bottle. And I was, I was very violent, very uh, angry, and I had a really rough childhood, a rough background. So when I came to the Lord, it was a very radical conversion. It was a, a really radical change. And I looked around and I saw all my friends that were going to hell. They, they were just like I was before I came to Christ, and I wanted to share Christ with them. And uh, Jesus had done such a wonderful thing Amen. in my life. I, I wanted Jesus to do that for everyone. Right. So it wasn't long before I started going out to the streets. I would go out to the uh, train stations and the bus stops, go out to airports and anywhere that there was people. Try and give out some gospel tracts, try and talk to somebody. And uh, it was in the winter of 2002 in the city of New Haven, right next to Yale University. I went out to the public green, to the public square, and I was trying to talk to people about the Lord. And I had a uh, survey approach that I had been using. And I would ask someone if I could have a few minutes of their time to do a little survey. And the questions started off very basic, very simple, non-spiritual, slowly got into the spiritual uh, aspect. And it was a way to try and start a dialogue with people, very slow and gentle. But that day, nobody wanted to talk to us. And I went with a friend from church, and uh, neither of us had any success in getting anyone to stop to take this survey. Now, it was very cold. I remember the, the wind was very bitter, uh, or very harsh on your skin. and uh, Everyone was trying to get to where they were going, trying to get to work, or trying to catch the bus. So we couldn't get anyone uh, to stop for a few minutes to, to talk to us. So my friend said, what do you want to do? Do you want to go home? And, I said, no, we, we came out here to witness and to talk to people about the Lord, and that's what we're going to do. I just didn't know how we were going to do that yet. And I looked over to see, where's everyone going? Why can't we get anyone to stop? And sure enough, uh, everyone was uh, 
waiting for this particular bus at this bus stop. And this crowd continued to grow larger and larger. And they already had 30 or 40, maybe even 50 people waiting at that one corner of the park, waiting for the bus. And I had heard about street preaching before. I had never seen it. I had heard about street preaching and always thought maybe someday I would do something like that. And I saw right next to that crowd of about 40 people a bench. And nobody was sitting on that bench. And I thought came into my mind that I could stand up on that bench, just open up my Bible, and, and give a word to the crowd as they're waiting for the bus. If they don't want to stop to talk with us because they're too busy trying to catch the bus, then we'll go to where they are and talk to everyone all at the same time. So I told my friend, well, you see that you see that bus stop over there? He says, I do. I said, well, you see that bench nobody's sitting on? He said, yeah, I see that. I said, I think I, think I might stand up on that bench and just open up my Bible and, and share a word with the people as they wait. My friend said, well, well while you do that over there, I'm going to keep trying to do the surveys over there. <laughs> and so he, he, he broke off and split away and went the opposite direction. So I was a a little bit discouraged, went over there, and I'm nervous, you know, I'm uh, um, shaking and trembling a little bit in my heart, and was trying to flip through the Bible to find a Bible passage that I could preach on. I had only been saved for uh, uh, about two years, and I had never really preached before. Uh, I had witnessed a bit, and so I was trying to find something to talk uh, about. My friend came back over. And he said, well, the Lord sent them out two by two. So right, I'm going to stand yeah, with you. Right, yeah. you know, he overcame his fear of man and, and said, I'll pray for you while you preach. Amen. So I was encouraged by that. And I stood up and I, I said, excuse me, folks, I'd like to share a word with you. And I opened up my Bible and I preached. And uh, I preached long and hard for probably 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, one of the longest sermons I've ever preached as far as, uh, as, far as my feelings were concerned. And it went well. In fact, it went so well, my friend, who originally didn't even want to stand next to me, decided that uh, he wanted to jump in front of me and start preaching to the crowd himself. <laughs> now, he was just as tall as I was standing on the bench, though he was standing uh, on the right. sidewalk. Uh, he was very tall. And uh, so he, he jumped in front of the crowd. He got so excited at one point, started sharing a few things, and then he got out of the way for me to, to finish. He just couldn't, couldn't help but to, to get involved. So we looked around that park and we realized there's there's bus stops all over this this park. That there's bus stops all over this city. And uh, they have maybe 10, 20, 30 people just waiting there. You, know, you have 10, 20 minutes uh, until they get picked up by the bus. They thought, well, here's a captive audience. So we started doing our rounds, going to the different bus stops. By the time we got to the, to the beginning of where we started, it was a brand new crowd. It, we just kept doing our, our rounds, kept preaching, and uh, covered all the bus stops in the area. Now, I eventually I started going out you know, three or four times a week, as often as I could. It was a, it was a dollar to take the bus into the city and a dollar to take it back. And so I would, uh, every time I had a day off or an afternoon off or any time off of work, I would catch the bus and go and preach in the inner, in, inner city. I, called my ministry in those days it was uh, New England Outreach that was uh, now it's now that we travel the country and preach outside of New England we call it open-air outreach uh, but back in those days it was New England Outreach and I remember one time uh, I was standing up on a stool in the busy downtown a lot of people walking around and I I got in, engaged with one man who was dialoguing with me and, and I asked him well 
do you do you consider yourself to be a good person? You see, this was the type of evangelism training that I had received and about this uh, way of, of talking to people. And he said, yes, I consider myself to be a good person. I said, have you ever, uh, you know, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? He said, uh, uh, well, maybe, I think so. I said, have you ever told a lie? He said, yes. He said, well, that makes you a liar. I said, have you ever stolen anything? He said, yes. I said, well, that makes you a thief. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a person with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? Oh, yes. I said, have you ever taken God's name in vain? He said, yes. Said, so you're a, a lying, you know, stealing, uh, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. And you claim to be a good person. So you're self-righteous. And he, he began to feel convicted. You can tell his Amen. demeanor That's seemed right. to change. That's right. But all that changed. His demeanor, uh, he, he, the... the Grief and uh, conviction seemed to disappear when I said, well, here's the good news. Is that you broke the law, Jesus paid your fine. <laughs> oh, and he said, great well, great. If Jesus paid my fine, then I'm all set. And I said, no, you need to repent and believe. He said, why? Hasn't my fine been paid? I said, well, yeah, I didn't understand how to reason with him. I said, I said, your fine has been paid, but if you don't believe it, then you're going to have to pay your own fine. And he said, he said that doesn't make any sense. And I, I, I admit, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't refute his reasoning. Yeah, that's right. Now this man, being in the inner city, looked like he had been through the legal system before. Maybe he had been in court, and he knows a, a, a fine that is paid is a done deal. Yeah. He, once, once the money's been given to the court and that fine is paid, you can't ask for it to be paid again. That's right. So he knew, well, if Jesus paid my fine, then there's nothing that can be required of me, and he's not in any danger anymore. It doesn't matter if he repents and believes or doesn't. His fine has been paid. So that that was the evangelism training I received, and I I couldn't couldn't make that view of the atonement compatible with what I saw in the Bible that Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone is saved. And that there's conditions that need to be met on the part of the sinner before they can receive forgiveness through Christ. And so that started my uh, study on the topic of the atonement. And the atonement is uh, one of my favorite you know, topics to study, to think about, to read about. The atonement's the greatest thought that you can ever have. Yeah, and that's the, right. The greatest contemplation that can enter our minds. Yeah. It's the greatest event uh, of all of That's history. Right. That's right. And so what I'd like to talk to you today is uh, about the atonement. In fact, right now I'm working on a book on the atonement that I hope to be uh, done with in uh, a year or less. And uh, some of the things I'm going to share right now come from things that I've been writing in the book. Now, in my study of the atonement, I have found uh, an understanding of the moral government of God is essential to understanding the atonement. That's right. Because the atonement obviously relates to sin. And sin relates to the moral law. The moral law relates to moral government. So it's inconceivable how the atonement could not relate to moral government. In fact, the very reason that we need an atonement is because we have sinned. Mm -hmm. If we weren't under any type of moral obligation, we couldn't, have, we couldn't be guilty of sin. Uh, if we weren't guilty of sin, we would need no, no savior, no forgiveness. Uh, so again, an understanding of moral government uh, is essential to understanding the atonement. And apart from that, uh, it's hard to, hard to understand. 
One of the first principles that I learned uh, with moral government is that God governs mankind and moral beings through influence and not causation. Now, this is actually directly uh, connected to the atonement, and I'll explain how later. But we see in Deuteronomy, verse 30, or chapter 30, and I have a lot of verses I want to try and get through. Thirty. Thirty, verse nineteen. God said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, a blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. So here you see that God is giving man the choice. He's setting it before you. It's not something he's going to decide. It's something that he's he's uh, setting before all of us. And he says it's life or death. It's good or evil. It's blessing or cursing. Now these are what you would call the sanctions of the moral law. That there is reward for obedience. There is penalty for disobedience. And these ought to be uh, influential upon our mind and influential upon our choice. Uh, any rational soul has a regard for their own well-being. Amen, that's it's right. It's irrational not to. Yes. Uh, even the most uh, you know, purest, benevolent being who uh, operates and does all that he does for the sake uh, of others will still have a natural regard for his own well-being. That's right. You know, saints who love God supremely and love their neighbor equally uh, will still you know, prefer the, the pleasure of heaven over the pains of hell. That's right. And so we have a, a natural regard for our own well-being. So God, to influence our choice, appeals to these uh, you know, sensibilities that we have, and this natural regard for our well-being. In fact, when God tried to influence Adam and Eve not to sin, He warned them, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. That's right. So that ought to be that that should have been influential upon their mind that well I'm not going to make that choice because of what it would result in. And the devil knew that that was an influence upon them, so the when he wanted them to sin, he he counteracted the influence God had established and brought doubt to the sanction of the law and said you will not surely die. Tried to give them a motive to sin and said you will become like God. That's right. So you see moral agents uh, make decisions in light of motives. Uh, Businessmen know this the most. Mm -hmm. You know, when they try and sell a product, right. they try and uh, portray it as something that'll be beneficial to your life, very helpful to your needs, something very pleasurable, make you happy. That and they they capitalize on this, and so decisions are made in light of motives. But another key in the moral government of God that I found to be essential to the atonement is that it's not limited to mankind that for the longest time I had a hard time wrapping my mind upon the uh, necessity for the atonement because because I limited the moral government of God the moral government of God to man mm -hmm. but the Bible says that he is the Lord of hosts That's right and the word host means masses multitudes in fact the Bible says the hosts of heaven cannot even be numbered mm -hmm. that they're innumerable and God says uh, that he has commanded the hosts of heaven 
Now we know that the hosts of heaven are moral agents because there's been a rebellion right. uh, amongst them. If they weren't free moral agents, if they were uh, under a causation that God caused, everything that the angels and the devils did, uh, then there couldn't, couldn't have been any rebellion. They never would have sinned. Every, every angel would have done the will of God. But the fact that some of them have rebelled and resisted God uh, shows that they have a free will as well. And, uh, of course, they must have a natural regard for their own well-being, otherwise hell would be no punishment to them. That's correct. The fact that God even punishes the devils with hell shows that the devils must have a natural regard for their own well-being. So, the moral government of God, His law, and the sanctions of His law are not just uh, throughout mankind but throughout his entire universe, right, throughout all the innumerable hosts of heaven. Yeah. They're also obligated to his law and are motivated and moved uh, by the sanctions and the threatenings and the promises that are found in God's law. Another point that is, I think, very necessary in understanding the atonement, as the atonement relates to sin, sin relates to the law, uh, what is the purpose of the law? Amen. Because if you have a very low view of the law, you'll right. have a very low view of the Amen. atonement. That's if right. you have a misunderstanding of the one, you'll have a misunderstanding Absolutely. of the other. It's yeah. inevitable. Mm -hmm. Now the purpose of any law, be it in civil government, family government, or moral government, is to promote the rights and well-being of the people. That's the purpose. Mm -hmm. When I, uh, in my family government, if I tell my child, don't touch that, it's because I think, you know, if you touch a hot stove, you're going to hurt yourself. If I tell my child, do your homework, it's because I think education is going to benefit their life. If I say, don't play in the road and eat your vegetables, it's because I think that one is harmful to them and one is beneficial to them. Now, a child, in their limited mind, they might not comprehend the reasons for my commands. And they, uh, they sometimes think, I'm just trying to spoil their fun. Why can't I do this? I, they think they'll enjoy it. They think it'll be pleasurable. But I know something that they don't know. My superior intelligence is what qualifies me to govern my children. And the same applies uh, you know, to our elected officials. That we don't know everything about government. We don't know everything about how laws are to be made and passed. And we don't know everything about business. So in a republic, we try and elect officials mm -hmm. that are, are specialists and experts in the areas that, that are going to affect us. So we vote for them to make those decisions on our behalf. That's right. Uh, to make the, those decisions as our representative. And they're uh, supposed to be based upon their intelligence in these particular areas of government. And the government is to make laws for the good of the people. That's right. For the rights of the people. And Paul said in Romans 13 that they are a minister of God to thee right. for good. For good. You know, anything that the uh, government does that is unnecessary is tyranny. Mm -hmm. But government is necessary because you can't have peace without law and order. You can't have law and order without government. So government is essential to peace. And the same applies to the moral government of God that in his laws he knows in his infinite mind what is for our good Amen. and what is for our uh, evil. In fact, when God said, uh, I've given you this law, he said in, uh, let's see, Deuteronomy 10.13, he said it was given to them for their good. Only. And then you have also in Jeremiah 7.6, 
he told them to re refrain and, and to stay away from idols which are to their hurt. Mm -hmm. And so he outlaws things that are to our detriment and he promotes things that are to our benefit. Amen. Now it should be self-evident if you study the Ten Commandments, obviously, uh, you know, murder is, is bad for everyone. That's right. You know, murder is bad for the murderer. If a mm -hmm. murderer is murdered, he knows his rights are being violated. The same applies to stealing. Now, a sinner might think it's to their benefit to steal, but they know it's not to their benefit if someone steals from them. That's right. And so the law contemplates not just the benefit of a single individual, but the benefit and good of the whole. It's public justice, the public well-being. And uh, you have the, you know, adultery is a violation of our rights and well-being. The, the family unit is essential, I believe, to the well-being of our right. society, and yeah. adultery is contrary to that. A husband has a right to the affection and love of his uh, wife, and the wife has the right to the affection and love of the husband, and so if there's adultery, it's a violation of our rights, right. a violation of our well-being. And uh, many of the commandments deal with the rights and well-being of men. But there's also the rights and well-being of God. Right, God is a person, a real being, uh, uh, who ha has emotions and has experiences. Uh, he's truly grieved by sin. Obviously, a blasphemy is a violation of his rights. Amen. You know, idolatry is a violation of his well-being. He's worthy, and that's why he ought to be worshipped. Amen. Amen. Uh, so the Ten Commandments is for the good of the entire universe that we ought to love everyone according to their value Amen. and it's, the, the law has a, a purpose, it's not arbitrary. Now the purpose of penalty is also I think very essential to understanding the atonement because uh, as has been said many times a law without penalty is mere advice, it's not law, it doesn't have authority or influence and I see it in family government all the time. If I tell my child don't touch that They'll keep touching it unless it's followed up by a sanction. Now the sanction isn't always a penalty, it can also be a reward. There's times I tell my child, if you do this or do that, I'll buy you an ice cream. And right away, they'll obey. There's times I'll say, if you do this or if you do that, you're going to get in trouble. And again, right away, they obey. Now they obey in correspondence to how certain they are that I'll follow through with That's right. If I'm inconsistent, <laughs> Then they uh, they'll ch they'll sometimes test their chances, mm -hmm. and if I don't if I say something, uh, tell them what to do, but I don't I don't give them any motivation. If I don't give them any motive or any sanction of uh, a reward or a punishment, then they can disregard it completely and do whatever they want to do. And so penalty is essential to law of Amen. any kind, whether Amen. it be governmental, uh, civil, or moral. Uh, it's essential. Now we see in the Bible, uh, God executes penalty to be examples unto others. We read in 2 Peter 2, 6, or Jude 1, 7, in 1 Corinthians 10, 5 to 6, and 10, 11, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to be an example unto others. Right. Or it says God, what God did to Israel in the wilderness mm -hmm. was an example unto yep. others. Yep. God said in Ezekiel, 23, 46 to 48, he was going to judge them for their lewdness that others might hear and fear and not follow after their example. 
even in the civil government of uh, Israel. Sometimes if uh, they executed capital punishment upon someone, they would hang their corpse upon a tree. And that was that others, it says, might hear and fear. Because when you see the consequence of transgression, you're influenced to avoid transgression. Uh, when you see the result of that choice, you're influenced not to make that choice. And so the uh, penalty of the law serves a necessary pur purpose of a public example. I think that's what's lacking in our society today. Right. Is a public example. That's we, right. Uh, penalty is, is reduced to this idea of the rehabilitation of the criminal. Mm. But that's not it. It's, it's to deter others from doing as that criminal has done for the right and well-being of the society. Amen. To uphold the rights and well-being of those who are being uh, sinned against, of those whose rights are being violated. Now the purpose of penalty is not any type of personal revenge or vindictiveness. Uh, for example, when I was a criminal, and like I said, I, my was the first time I was arrested was a felony. I hit a kid in the head with a, with a glass bottle. When I went to court, it was not him versus me. It was the state of Connecticut versus me. Because what I did was considered, uh, you know, a crime against the public at large. Mm -hmm. That my my behavior and action is is contrary not to the rights of an individual, but to the rights of everybody in the society. Right. And so, when crime is prosecuted, if it's properly prosecuted, it is not personal revenge for the victim, but for the public justice or public good of the whole. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what happened with uh, James Holmes and the Batman massacre? This guy went into the movie theater and opened fire on everyone. Um, I was very disturbed when I read how the prosecutor said they might consider capital punishment. Or, <laughs> and uh, they're going to consult with the victims uh, about that matter. And I was very disturbed over that for two reasons. Number one, because the penalty of the law is a reflection of the importance of the precept. That's right. That the more important the precept is, the more severe the penalty will be. That's right. Amen. And the Bible says, He that sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's right. Because if you're not executing capital punishment upon a murderer, then you're not properly valuing human life of the of the victim. You're not you're not elevating the the precept of the law as it ought to be. Right. Because the precept of the law is as important as the severity of the penalty. Second of all, they said they were going to consult with the victims over that matter. Whether the victims want it or not, it ought to be executed. Mm -hmm. Because it's for the public good. It's for the public's well-being. It's for the rights of us all. For anyone who uh, is endangered by that type of behavior. And so, for a public deterrent, for anyone else right. who's contemplating, he, he should face capital punishment to be a public example that this is what happens to those who behave like that. Now they say, well, you know, um, not everyone who is a criminal is rational and thinks like that, but there are many people uh, who might not be um, to the depravity level of a mass murderer, but there are people even organized crime, that sort of thing, who contemplate murder 
who might not necessarily be as irrational as someone like that. Mm -hmm. And by giving a, an example of this is what happens when you murder, there are certain people that are deterred by that. That's right, so, amen. Uh, the result is that murder is prevented. Mm -hmm. The purpose of penalty then, is to prevent the crime. Now what then is forgiveness? If Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin, it's impossible to understand the atonement without understanding forgiveness. One of the greatest studies that I've had in life has been to study the you know the attributes of God, his mercy, his benevolence, and what 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 he actually does when he forgives sin. Now there's the Greek word which is commonly used for remission or forgiveness when it says without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin or when it says the um, you know that this is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sin the word is uh, a thesis in the Greek uh, and it means to relax a claim mm -hmm. to pardon a debt Amen. or to remit a penalty mm -hmm. Now, if the purpose of the penalty is to show the importance of the precept and to deter others from doing likewise, and forgiveness is to actually set aside the penalty, then you have the problem of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the problem of forgiveness? The problem of forgiveness is that the purpose of the penalty is not fulfilled. Right. If, if executing the penalty deters people from doing uh, as that criminal has done, then to set aside that penalty has the opposite effect. Right. It encourages people to do as that man has done. If, if executing the penalty shows the importance of the law, then setting aside the penalty shows it devalues right. the law. Now you have... Uh, you know, certain judges you hear about, a man, you know, is accused of molesting a child. And the judge is soft on him and sends mm -hmm. him to, you know, prison for maybe a few months and he gets out on probation. There's cases like this. And obviously the impression is made that that judge has a very low estimation of the evil of what that man had done. He doesn't think it's really that bad. If he thought it was really that bad, he would have given a much harsher penalty. Mm -hmm. So if being weak on crime gives the impression that the judge does not really value the law, then certainly the total forgiveness would much more give the impression mm -hmm. that the judge, the ruler, does not really value the law. Mm -hmm. So the problem then of forgiveness is that if God were to forgive us when we sin, what would happen to the value of the law? It would, it would be devalued. What would happen to his character? It would seem as if he doesn't regard his law. If God were to simply forgive without any atonement, just by his mere mercy and by his grace, then there would be no deterrent effect upon the universe. Mm -hmm. The public example of penalty is set aside, so there's no discouragement to commit sin. In fact, it becomes encouraged. So these are what you would call the problems or obstacles in the way of, of pardon. Now you have, in civil government, you have pardon, sometimes. But pardon in a civil government always is a reflection of an imperfection of our civil government. That when a, when a governor or a president pardons someone, it's usually based on a sufficient reason that there is a, a fault with the uh, jury, 
or a fault with the judge, yeah. some type of fault in the court system, an imperfection of our legal system. So sometimes it's necessary then for a governor or a president to give a pardon. But God certainly can't give a pardon in any way that would give the impression that there's a fault in his legal system. Right. He certainly can't give a, a pardon and give the impression that sin is not that bad mm -hmm. or that the penalty is too harsh or too severe. That God can't give these false impressions if he's going to give us a pardon. Now you have uh, Ezekiel, I mean uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11. That sums up this problem of forgiveness. Eight, verse eleven. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes eight, 8 11. eleven. Very good verse. You're gonna mark that verse. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So you see then, the, the opposite of this verse is that the sentence of the law, when it's executed upon an evil person, uh, would discourage mm -hmm. the hearts of men from doing evil. But if it's not executed, or if it's not executed Quick. quickly, yeah, there's well then their heart is set within them to do evil. So God, loving His universe, and His universe of free moral agents is massive, even beyond mankind, all of the hosts of heaven, and God's law is for the good of all, He certainly wants to uphold His law. He doesn't want to forgive us in a way that would encourage the transgression of His law. Amen. He doesn't want to pardon us in a way that would devalue the law, or give the impression that He's soft or weak on crime, or that He doesn't hate sin. He doesn't want to pardon us in a way that makes his government seem imperfect or unjust. So that's the uh, problem of forgiveness that the atonement is designed to overcome. People sometimes think, well, how can God have a problem? How can God have a dilemma? Well, if God can't have a problem, then he can't have a solution. Right. And if there's no solution, then there's no atonement. Right. The idea of an atonement is that it solves the problem. Amen. So obviously then, God had a uh, divine dilemma. And the uh, Bible says, this is uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 24 to 26. Yep. Chapter 3, verse 24. Romans 3, 24 to 26. The Bible says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness Amen. for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just, the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So here the Bible gives the objective of the atonement. That the atonement is a means through which God can justify freely by His grace. It's a means through which God is uh, uh, declared righteous. Amen. 
Now that word righteous by Paul is the same word he uses uh, for justification, when it means to justify. And uh, you know, in a rule of biblical hermeneutics, if you want to study the meaning of a word, you got to find how that word is used else, elsewhere. Right. So if this word means justification, as Paul uses it elsewhere throughout his writings, then it's saying that the atonement is designed to declare God's justification for remitting the sins that Amen. have passed. Amen. In other words, if God remitted the sins without the atonement, He would not be perceived as justified. Right. And that is then also consistent with the flow of this verse where it says uh, that He might be just and the justifier. In other words, if God forgave without an atonement, He would have been unjust. He would have been unjust to his character because it would have looked as if he didn't really hate uh, sin. He would have been unjust to his government right. as it would have reflected some type of imperfection in his legal system. It would have been uh, unjust to his law as it Amen. would have been devalued. Amen. And he would have been unjust to his universe right. by encouraging sin. Right. Because when the angels sinned, God quickly executed judgment upon them. They were thrust out of heaven. They're reserved unto judgment now. But then if we sin and God simply forgave us, what would the host of heaven believe? Do they have a chance of sinning and getting away with it? Well, we did. Is there a 50-50 chance? There certainly appears to be an inconsistency in God's character. How can God punish the one and pardon the other? What justification can God provide for this inconsistency? Which, what, what reconciliation can God uh, provide that reconciles this, this problem? And that was the atonement of Jesus Christ. That through sacrificing His Son as a substitute for our damnation, God is now justified throughout His entire universe in the minds of all of the intelligent hosts of heaven in forgiving us of our sins. Amen. That no one can question whether or not God has a sufficient reason for doing so. Amen. Now the word here again for remission of sins, that means to remit penalty. Now I was always taught in my evangelism and uh, Christian training that Jesus took our penalty. Mm -hmm. But when I studied that the, Jesus died for the remission of sins, right. and the remission is setting aside the penalty, well how could he have how could he have taken my penalty if the purpose of his suffering and death was that my penalty would be set aside? If the, if, the, if the one is a means through which the other could be avoided, then they can't be one in identity. You see? And so I realize the Bible represents not only a substitution of the person, that the just died for the unjust, but that there's actual substitution in suffering. That the penalty that God threatens in His law uh, is eternally, eternity in hell. The Bible says they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And if my punishment is eternal torment, mm -hmm. then Jesus Christ could not have taken my exact and literal punishment. Right. So the idea is that His suffering and His death is a substitute for my punishment. A substitute for my penalty that renders my penalty remittable. As the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The contrary of that, the opposite is that with the shedding of blood, there is remission of sin. 
And so when Christ suffered and died on the cross, He, he provided God a way of being justified in remitting my penalty. He showed how God is righteous even though He doesn't punish us. That God honors His law, maintains the authority of His law, and deters His universe from violating His law through the atonement just like He would have through my damnation. Amen. Now if God had damned me as I deserved for violating God's law, the impression would have been given throughout His universe of all the hosts of heaven and all of mankind and everyone would consider it that God regards His law. And God's going to uphold it. God's going to maintain it. And you don't want to become like that Jesse God who's in hell forever. So you don't want to break the law of God. Amen. But by, by setting aside my punishment and replacing it with the atonement of Christ, when people see in heaven the Lamb that was slain, and John uh, the Revelator saw the Lamb that appeared as though He had been slain, so the wounds and the marks are still there. Right. He still appears to Amen. have been slain. When, when all of the hosts of heaven and all of the universe of God sees that the only reason I've been forgiven is because of the suffering of the Son of God, the only, the only reason my penalty has been remitted is because of the agony of God in the flesh. Well, now they know God must certainly regard His law. Amen. That the law certainly must be important. The law must be valuable. If it were not valuable, if it was not important, God could have easily Amen. forgiven he wouldn't have had to go through so much trouble to forgive sin. And so now the atonement accomplishes exactly what my punishment would have accomplished. Mm -hmm. It deters his universe from sinning, shows his regard for the law, and honors his law, maintains his government. Now I'm going to cut it short because we're coming to the end here. Uh, there are uh, conditions of pardon that are consistent with the nature of the atonement. That what the atonement accomplished was not an automatic salvation. Mm -hmm. Now if Christ had literally taken my penalty, mm -hmm. certainly the same sins cannot be punished twice. Right. That's always been the stronghold of the Calvinist. Like uh, Charles Spurgeon said it would be unjust if, if our sins were punished in Christ for then us to then be punished for our own sins. If Jesus took all of the punishment that our sins deserved, then they, then they deserve no more. And any more punishment would be therefore unjust. But if you understand the atonement was not the punishment, not the penalty, but a substitute for it. And a substitute obviously is not the identical thing. It's, it's, it, it fulfills the purpose of the object it's substituting, but it's not the object right. that it is substituting. Right. So the atonement being a substitute for our penalty is not our exact and literal penalty but fulfills its purpose then all of the obstacles that God had in the way of pardon have been removed he's not obligated to forgive but he can freely forgive by his grace Amen. And I think that's one of the reasons why the debt analogy ought to be avoided mm -hmm. the debt analogy in the Bible is used to describe the nature of forgiveness we're to pray father forgive us our debts the debt analogy is never used in Scripture to describe the nature of the atonement. The closest to the debt analogy or in the Bible for the atonement is what we mentioned earlier, the, the redemption or the ransom. Mm -hmm. But a ransom is paid to the captor for the release of a captive. A debt is paid 
for the discharge of this obligation. It's like you have a mortgage, and you have a mortgage on your house. You pay off the bank uh, for the loan. It's a, paying a debt and paying a ransom are not identical at all. But if you if you pay off your mortgage because you have a Hispanic friend named Jesus who pays off your mortgage for you, <laughs> then certainly the bank the bank cannot then require you to pay. That's right. Once your friend Jesus paid off your mortgage, there's nothing to be paid. And so if we apply this debt analogy to what Jesus Christ did, then there's nothing left to be paid. And if there's nothing left to be paid, there's nothing left to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. Certainly the bank hasn't forgiven anything. The bank can't say, I forgive you of your mortgage. Your mortgage has been paid in full. And so the debt analogy should be avoided when they're talking about the atonement. What the atonement was, was a means through which God could honor His law, though He forgives. Right. He, could, he could reveal His character, though He forgives. He could uphold and maintain the authority and influence of His law throughout His universe, even though He forgives. But the conditions is that we repent of our sins, and we, we believe the Gospel, and God will turn from His wrath when we turn from our sins. Amen. That the Amen. cross of Calvary justified God in turning away from His wrath, but He only turns away from His wrath when sinners turn from their sins. Amen. So we're not saved at Calvary, we're saved at conversion through Calvary. That's right. And that's the difference. So, uh, so I hope you appreciated this uh, very short uh, teaching here. Uh, again, a lot of this is, is um, a very, very condensed version of what I'm writing in my book on the atonement, which will be available soon. Uh, but this has really helped me um, have a consistent theology with what I see in the Bible, that he died for the remission of sins, that there's conditions uh, that uh, no one is saved until they are converted, that Jesus Christ died for all men, but that doesn't mean that all men are automatically saved. And uh, certainly a consistent theology is necessary to living a consistent That's right. Christian Amen. life. Amen. So let's just uh, end in prayer uh, for today. Father, I, I thank you for, for your atonement that you provided for us, means through which we could receive your grace, that you could express your mercy and safety and wisdom. Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. How wonderful of a God you are that is wicked and is hell-deserving as we've chosen to be, that you are chosen to be merciful Amen. and you have chosen to be loving. Amen. And you've sacrificed even your only Son to save people like us. So I just pray, Father, that the truth of your atonement, the truth of your sacrifice will be understood crystal clear, not only in our minds, but in the minds of the whole world, Lord, that we'll take the gospel to the ends of the earth, preach it loud and clear for all to hear, Amen. that all might be saved, because you know you're trying to save as many people as possible. Amen. So Father, we love you and we thank you for your atonement. I just pray that you'll continue to enlighten our minds and guide our hearts as we uh, continue to read your word and to study your nature and character. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.
the stops and 